If you have your Bibles, would you please join me in the Gospel of John chapter 2. John chapter 2 is an incredible passage of Scripture. It's an amazing chapter. In fact, John chapter 2 begins with the miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana. It's the first miracle that Jesus will perform. In a way, Jesus bursts onto the scene publicly speaking and he declares his supernatural ability in the beginning of John chapter 2. By the time we arrive at John chapter 3, we are in a very familiar chapter. In fact, if we were to ask anyone in the world, believer or non-believer, to name for us a passage of Scripture, I would venture to say many of them would settle on John chapter 3, and they would know the verse, number 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So at the beginning of John chapter 2, we meet Jesus performing a miracle to meet a need at a wedding feast. In John chapter 3, we see him conversing with Nicodemus, where he will speak to him the truth, you must be born again, and he declares the reality of God's love for the whole world. But sandwiched in between there, we see a remarkable moment concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, and from it we will learn much. In fact, whenever I read Scripture, I'm amazed at the accounts of faith, strength, and bravery. It it makes me realize the cost of standing for the truth. Now, I don't think that acts of faith and bravery and strength are limited to the pages of Scripture. I happen to believe that that's still going on in the day and age in which we live. And I know as a student of the Bible as well that it uses words concerning our lives and our stewardship of life like fight and contend and stand. Paul was writing to Timothy and he said this to him, Fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. He is exhorting Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. A common theme that exists among Christians. Amongst churches that want to reach an unbelieving world. That want to reach what I would largely assess as a post-Christian culture. Is that we have to become less militant. It stands to reason that we have to be less aggressive, that we should be less preachy, that we should be more flexible, that we should be less sure of our convictions. In fact, there seems to be an inordinate amount of importance on always being as agreeable as possible, that that seeking to find some friendly common ground is always superior to earnest contending. But all of that stands in stark contrast, as I already established, Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Jude, it's a little letter toward the end of the New Testament, in verse 3 speaks these words, you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Paul, exhorting the believers at Ephesus, said this, Take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, contend, fight. Words that are somewhat foreign to our Christian vernacular. 
I think sometimes we have the wrong idea of fight and contend and stand. And we spend our time fighting on unnecessary things. I don't know if you know this or not, but every church in all the world should have gray chairs with lumbar supports. And if they don't, we should be willing to fight over that. I think a lot of energy has been wasted and a lot of potentially fruitful ministry has been lost because people have the wrong idea of contend, fight, stand. In fact, I just give you the words of Scripture. Fight the good fight of faith. Earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Stand against the wiles of the devil. Spurgeon, who pastored in the 1800s in London and had a great cultural impact, said this, Don't go around carrying a theological revolver in your trousers. Don't go around with your fists balled up, always looking to be in some kind of contention or argument or disputation. He said, have a sword ready at your side, but always have it in its scabbard. The Bible teaches us this as well as Paul was writing to Timothy. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit. Do you realize that it is possible for us to strive to contend for words that are of no value whatsoever? He will also write to Timothy, foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing that they do gender strifes. As you pastor Timothy, and as you interact with false teachers, and as you engage your lost community there at Ephesus, I want you to avoid foolish questions from people who are just looking to argue there's no merit nor value in it. In Romans chapter 14, Paul said, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Certainly we should receive those who are weaker in the faith, who have not yet matured, spiritually speaking, to where we are, but not to the degree that we stumble and get involved with doubtful disputations. What we're studying in the coming weeks is the awareness that we must contend I want to exhort you to stand. I want to encourage you to fight. And the reality of Scripture is Jesus did just that. One writer said this, I never could believe in the Jesus Christ of some people. For the Christ in whom they believe is simply full of affectionateness and gentleness. Whereas I believe there was never a more splendid specimen of manhood, even in its sternness, than the Savior. And the very lips that declared that he would not break a bruised reed uttered the most terrible anathemas upon the Pharisees. It's truth. Again, let me simply set the scene. The wedding feast at Cana. John chapter 3. And sandwiched in there, these remarkable verses, I want to begin reading in verse 13. If you don't have your Bible, the verses will be here on the screen. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep, and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, 
Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Jesus Christ has left the wedding feast at Cana and has made his way into Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, for a very short period of time, creates no small stir when he does what we would say cleanses the temple. Though I think merely saying that Jesus cleanses the temple does a disservice to what Jesus actually did. This is an uh, an unbelievable disruption in Jerusalem. Remember during the Passover that the Judean hillsides and the greater Jerusalem area would swell to a population of nearly a million people. In fact, in just a few years, we are going to see Jesus enter Jerusalem around this same time of year on a young colt, and as he rides into the city, hundreds of thousands of people will gather on the roadsides, waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, save So many people shouting that proclamation that the Pharisees, the Bible tells us, assume that the whole world has gone after him. To their minds and from their viewpoint, their perception was the population of the entire world has now chosen to follow Jesus. What can we do about him? You may even remember at the time of Jesus' birth, there was no room in the inn. There was no place for Jesus to stay. In fact, he is born in a stable because the press of the population was such that there was no more room. I tell you all of this because I don't want you to think of Jesus simply walking into the temple courtyard and creating a little minor disturbance. I want you to be aware of the fact that Jesus does something so dramatic that this would have been the lead story on every newscast that there was. Word of what Jesus has done at the temple would spread throughout that Judean hillside to the masses of people gathered everywhere, and everyone would have been speaking his name. What Jesus does on the tail end of this miracle at the wedding feast of Cana, we would assume would completely shut down effective ministry. Jesus, you've just turned water into wine at a wedding feast. Just keep the ball rolling. Keep being affectionately kind. Keep meeting the needs of the masses. In effect, and I mean no disservice, keep doing those magic tricks so that people will believe you're the Messiah. We want to jump to John chapter 3 and see Jesus communicate those incredible words about the love of God. And we think in our minds, the love of God and the help of people must be completely separated from a fervent stand for truth. And what Jesus declares unto us is just the opposite. If we are ever going to have effective, lasting ministry, it will only be because we stand for truth. In recent decades, postmodernism has overtaken our country. And I don't want to get lost in moments of the day or cultural things, but I do believe, as I referenced earlier, it is possible to accurately describe America as a post-Christian society. Rejection of scriptural truth. Adherence to the Word of God is utterly counter-cultural. Is it because government is merely corrupt? Is it because... What once was a moral majority has now become a minority and relatively immoral at that? Is it because government officials 
refuse to publicly affirm Christian values? Is it because Christians have not stood up and shouted down the world for their worldly ways enough? Not in my estimation. In fact, what I believe has happened is that the church that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ has not stood on the revealed truth that God has given us and has been too unwilling to contend for the faith. In fact, we have a day now where entire denominations reject the deity of Jesus Christ. We have denominations now which will teach that there is salvation through many means and certainly salvation from another name other than Jesus. We have churches that meet week after week and refuse to preach against sin. We have Christians that have largely forgotten the value of truth and the command to stand for it. I don't think it happened overnight. I believe that it happened over time as leaders downplayed the truth for expediency. The stated intention oftentimes not offending a lost world. Francis Schaeffer wrote this, Here is the great evangelical disaster, the failure of the evangelical world to to stand for truth as truth. There is only one word for this, namely accommodation. The evangelical church has accommodated to the world spirit of the age. He went on and said, When churches become more concerned with how truth is received by an unsaved people steeped in a godless culture than they are concerned with the truth itself, compromise is sure to follow. We live in a day of much dialogue and little standing for truth. I reiterate to you that we have argued and we have lamented over little nuances and preferences and idiosyncrasies, and in doing so, we have taken our emphasis of the truth away. Because we have not been willing to look at a world that is steeped in godlessness and lost and told them the truth about themselves, and that is they are sinners, which nobody likes to hear. How many of you like to be told that you're wrong? Nobody. You know why? You don't think you're wrong. And so when anybody tells you that you're wrong, it interrupts your thought process about yourself. It interrupts your own assessment. What the world needs is to be told the truth about them. They are sinners, and they need to be told the truth about Jesus, that he is the only way of salvation. Now, we can scream and shout about a thousand things. We can look at the world and we can shout them down for the way that they speak. We can shout them down for the way that they dress. We can shout each other down over tie knots and suits. We can scream and shout about a thousand things. But I want you to know this. If you simply tell the world the truth about their sinful condition and the truth that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, you will have enough of a fight on your hands. Because that truth in and of itself is offensive. That reality in and of itself is divisive. Jesus Christ was nothing but affectionate and tender toward the lost and broken sinner. So much so that the world of his day gave him a derisive moniker. Here's what they said of Jesus in Matthew eleven nineteen. They said, behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Whenever Jesus encountered an actual leper or a moral leper, we find that the Lord Jesus Christ was tender, compassionate, and affectionate. 
Even with the woman who was caught in adultery, caught red-handed, Jesus speaks words of forgiveness and of kindness to her. Why? They are already broken. They are already humbled. They are already sick of their life that is filled with sin. But Jesus reserves his most scathing rebukes for what we might call the purveyors of plastic piety. For the religious phonies, for the false teachers. And I want to take you to a passage of scripture and I want to communicate something to you. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus is speaking and I want you to take note of these verses. There's a phrase that I want you to grasp. Then in the audience of all the people, he said unto his disciples. So grasp this. In front of everybody, Jesus turns and speaks to his disciples and here's what he says. Beware of the scribes, which desire to walk in long robes, and love greetings in the markets, and the highest seats in the synagogues, and the chief rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. Now, if you miss that in the audience Jesus spoke to the disciples, you miss the key integer. Let me ask a question. How many of you? are from New York or New Jersey or the Northeast. My hand is up. My hand is up. That's a good bit of people in here. Who here would consider themselves true blue, Carolina, and only Carolina? Anybody? All right, we got the Brooks over here. The Brooks. All right, here, here, here's what we're going to do. And, and, and Mark Brody, you are not. You're a cheesehead from Wisconsin. Here's the scene. Let's say everybody in here that just raised their hand and said, I happen to be from the Northeast and mostly from New York and New Jersey because I, I personally believe that about 700 million Northeasterners are moving to the Charlotte area. That's how it seems. So let's just say for a second, feel the offense of this moment. Philip, I want to talk to you for a second about everybody that's moving here from New York and New Jersey. You know what I mean, don't you? Uh-huh. They come with that you-know attitude, and much like myself, I was accused of being a Yankee or behaving like a Yankee, which I still have never understood. Maybe you could clarify for me. But let's just, in front of everybody, let's talk about those Northeasterners for a while. Now, I want you to grasp how uncomfortable that becomes quick, doesn't it? I want you to grasp that even me standing here, I'm like, I want to be careful so that everybody knows I love everyone. And I mean everyone, don't care, Wisconsin, New York, New Jersey, West Virginia's on the line, but most every other place. And just know that. But it's, it's something to behold when you pause in front of everybody and single out a group of people to talk to somebody else. And I happen to believe that in Luke chapter 20, Jesus is singling out his disciples and he's talking to them in the audience in front of everybody. And I believe there were scribes there. And Jesus says to his disciples, hey guys, those scribes, those guys that like to get the best seats at the synagogues, those guys that like to go about and show off their piety and their long robes, those guys who like to stand up and make really long prayers, you know the guys I'm talking about. And the disciples are saying, oh yes, Lord. He says, they shall receive greater damnation. How do you think the scribes took that? Not well. In fact, in Capernaum, Jesus heals the man who has dropped down through the roof tiles. 
And there are in that room scribes and lawyers and Pharisees and they're writing down every word with gritted teeth and splinted eyes wanting Jesus to make a mistake. And he reads their heart and he steps up and he declares unto them truth. That takes incredible strength, amazing faith, bravery to contend and to stand and that's Jesus. Compassionate toward the sinner, strong in his stance for truth. Understand this moment in time as Jesus has ascended into Jerusalem to attend Passover. History will tell us that you could go to the temple during Passover week to offer up your sacrifice of atonement for your sins. And if you were poor, you could buy turtle doves to offer as your sacrifice. And if you arrived at Jerusalem and had not traveled there with your turtle doves, you could purchase them outside of the temple courtyard, and they would cost about $20. You would get your turtle doves, and you'd head into the temple courtyard to offer up your sacrifice. But Annas, the high priest of the day, has invented a system. He has put inspectors out there in the temple courtyard to pre-inspect your sacrifice to make certain it was without spot and without blemish. And you can imagine that each inspector managed to find a little blemish or a little spot on everything that was brought. And now you have this poor family from outside of Jerusalem coming into the temple courtyard with their turtle doves. The inspectors find them and they stop them and say, we're sorry, but your sacrifice just isn't going to cut it. Now we do happen to have some turtle doves here that have passed the test and you can have them. And again, history tells us that two turtle doves, which would have cost $20 outside the temple, Inside the temple courtyard, we're going for $350. And because Rome had overtaken the known world, people were traveling in from all kinds of provinces, and they had different kinds of currency. And when they got to the temple to drop their offering in the court of the treasury, they could not give those coins, so they had to exchange their coins for temple coins. And you can imagine the usury rate was incredibly high. And so you would come in and you would desire to give your gift to God and they would give you an exchange and you would pay an amazingly high interest rate. Sheeps and oxen were more expensive than that. And all of it was designed to line the pockets of Caiaphas and Annas and the Sanhedrin. Little do they realize that the author of that worship system The author of the law of God has just walked into the temple courtyard and he is no longer undercover as he has been up to this point in ministry. But after that first miracle where he declares in a public way that he is on the scene and that he is the promised Messiah, God in the flesh walks into that corrupt center of perversion and mangled law and goes crazy. I don't mean in the sense that he is unhinged. I mean in the sense of his activity. He disrupts the entire scene. This is merely my opinion. You don't have to agree with it. I happen to believe that there was a little bit of supernatural attached to his cleansing activity. 
And I believe that as Jesus made that scourge and went through the temple courtyard and chased out the animals and chased out the money changers and turned tables over and emptied money on the ground, he wasn't fooling around. He was so powerful and authoritative and strong. He is only asked later, by whose authority do you do this? Nobody tried to stop him. They just wanted to know who told him he could do this. And Jesus declares unto them in that moment, if you tear this temple down, I will rebuild it in three days. In effect, what he has just said to them is, I am God in the flesh. I am the chosen Messiah. I am here to fulfill the law. I am here to forgive the sins of man by my shed blood. Think for just a minute about what Jesus did. He turns upside down the bazaar of Annas. And years later, when he stands before Annas and Caiaphas, don't think for a second that they have forgotten what he did here in John 2. Don't think for a second they have forgotten that he's drugged their names through the mud for the liars and the false teachers that they are. And when they hit Jesus, and when they whip Jesus, and when they spit on Jesus, it is motivated not only by satanic fuel, it is motivated by rage and hate. They hated him, and yet he stood. You say, well, certainly that had to completely annihilate effective ministry. Here in John chapter 3, right in verse 1, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Scared to come to him in the day because he didn't want to risk his reputation. He comes to Jesus at night. And I have to believe that Nicodemus is thinking to himself, this is the first time I've seen something real in all of my days. This is the first time I've ever encountered some real righteousness and zeal for the house of God. These are the first pure motives I have ever encountered. And he wants to know who Jesus is. And he says, but I I have been born and I have done these things. And Jesus says, you must be born again. It would have been easy in that moment to try to make peace. You've just wrecked the temple. It would have been easy in that moment to try to backtrack and not tell Nicodemus, Nicodemus, I know you've spent your entire life trying to do the right thing. And I know you've spent your entire life trying to make God happy. I hate to say it to you this way, but you've wasted it all. You must be born again. And you must understand that I am Jesus and the only way to salvation is through me. That is unbelievably brave incredibly strong contention for the faith. And that's what Jesus did. And though we'd like to believe it completely brings his ministry down, in fact, we know it's the most effective and fruitful ministry that's ever existed, that of Jesus Christ. That's why I say to you, if you will simply tell people the truth about themselves and then have the audacity to tell people the truth about Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation, you'll have enough of a fight on your hands. I think to myself at times, we live in a world that is confused. We live in a world where denominations have been watered down and people will not call sin as it is sin. We live in a world where people are trying to carefully mirror the culture that they are trying to impact, thinking that they are brightening their light and salting up their salt, when in all reality they're doing just the opposite. 
What Jesus teaches us when he stands is let your light shine and let it shine brightly. The fact that you are a preserving agent is due to the reality and the quality that you are different, inherently different. Be different and be salty. Have you ever considered for a moment that you will go to somebody in this world to tell them the truth about their sin and they won't like to hear it and the truth about Jesus and they don't want to know it because they spent their entire life trying another way to fill that hole that's in their soul? And you're going to have the audacity to tell them like a know-it-all, like a narrow-minded person that there's only one way to heaven and that is Jesus. And that there's a vast portion of our world that thinks the only way to heaven as they know it is Buddha. Or the only way to heaven as they know it is Allah. Or the only way to heaven as they know it is Confucius or Hinduism. Or the only way to heaven as they know it is to work and to drag themselves through the mud to get it done. Or they've bought into some source of belief of Joseph Smith. Or they've bought into some book that's been written somewhere by somebody. And they're searching and they're looking. And you have the audacity to step forward to them and say, Everything that you've ever held on to is wrong. And the only way for you to fill that void in your heart and your soul, and the only way for you to ever make peace with a holy God in heaven is to surrender to and accept the shed blood of Jesus Christ. They will look at you and think what you would think of them. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to tell me that? There are tenets and principles of Scripture that are countercultural to the world in which we live. So do we just surrender them? Do we not talk about things like how God expects the home to work? Do we not talk about things because they're in Scripture yet offensive to people? Or do we understand it is to us to stand? And what matters after we're gone is have we handed off the truth? Who cares if we hand off gray chairs with lumbar supports or tie knots? Who cares Have we handed people the truth? Because that's something that goes to the next generation. In in the year 250, the Roman emperor was Decius. And he mandated that people worship him. Titus, who was trained by the apostle Paul, pastored on the Isle of Crete. And Paul, when he wrote to Titus, he exhorted him, you tell these pastors, you tell these young men to stand For the truth, tell them not to capitulate, tell them not to waver, stand, and that lineage was passed on, and that truth was delivered to the next generation and the next. In the year 250, when Decius mandated that he be worshipped, he found ten pastors from the Greek islands, and he was going to make a show of them. He demanded that they reject the truth of Jesus Christ, and that they worship him, and they refused. Because they refused, he tortured them, he racked them, and he scourged them. He tied them to horses, and he drugged them through heaps of dung. When they refused to capitulate and worship him, he simply had them martyred. And I know how we think, because I join in it with you. If I was ever faced with martyrdom or the fire... And they were going to make me publicly reject Jesus Christ. I believe I would stand. 
then ask yourself this question. Why are you afraid you'll be laughed at if you share the gospel with your coworker? Don't pretend like you'd stand when faced with the fire if you won't fulfill scriptural precedent now. If you're afraid to be weird or you're afraid to be different, don't act like when the going got tough, you'd be one of the tough that got going. Because fact is, you cower now. You cower to your children. You cower to your neighbor. You cower to your coworker. You cower on the soccer field or the football field or the baseball field. You cower everywhere. Why would we act like when the fire came, we'd all of a sudden have strength to stand? We've been trained that the only way to actually communicate the gospel is to find common ground. And I'm not saying we need to be mean. That's already been established. But I am saying to you, earnestly contending fiercely fighting the good fight of faith and standing against the wiles of the devil does not negate effective ministry. In fact, it's the stewardship we've been given. This is the faith that's been once delivered. And I, like you, have seen people fight over the dumbest of things. And denominations eat themselves from the inside out over the silliest of matters. I'm not saying we argue over flippant things that's been established, not to doubtful disputations, not foolish questions that gender strifes. But when it comes to Jesus and sin, if you can't stand on that, then don't act like you stand on anything else. You say, well, it can't be that cut and dry. It is that cut and dry. How come we can't tell our neighbor about Jesus? How come we have a generation of young people that are trying so desperately to just be like the world around them? Because I feel like for so long, they have seen such plastic piety, they don't even know what the real thing is. And when Nicodemus encountered the real thing, when he saw zeal that came from heaven, he had a few questions to ask. And after John 3, we know what happens. Jesus will perform miracles and he will fight them tooth and nail the rest of the way, all the way to the cross, literally nail. He'll fight them. And when he breaks through the grave and he ascends into heaven, he completely decimates their system. And though it still went on, it was just completely futile. Do you have the strength to stand? Say it's hard, absolutely. Standing up here, I am telling you, in the coming decades is going to be more and more challenging, not because I'm mean and not because I have a few preferences that I really want to push on everybody, but if I simply stood up and began to read from the front to the back, I'm going to be accused of all kinds of things. But it's not mine. It's his. Stand. Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.